This man Solomon, the most powerful, influential person that we know in history would say is the second wisest person in the Bible behind Jesus, has left with us these last 12 chapters his wisdom. The wisdom that comes from having achieved everything a person could set out to achieve. The kind of wisdom that comes from getting everything you wish for and then realizing that all of those things still leave you empty and none of them have the ability to satisfy. And so we wrap up our time here. Solomon leaves the best for last. This is the grand finale, right? This is where if you're at a concert and you're shouting encore, this is where they come back out and have a victory lap with the best stuff, the thing you wanted to hear, the thing you've been wanting to be a part of for the longest time. Here we are. We're going to get it in verse 1 through verse 13, I believe, of chapter 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If this is the first time that you've ever finished a book of the Bible, I hope that you at least take a few moments in your own heart and mind to celebrate. This is quite an accomplishment, especially a book as difficult to understand and to discern as Ecclesiastes. So I want to begin to walk through this text as we 
think about and as we join many Christians around the world in celebrating Easter, that today we believe, we celebrate this moment where Jesus is not dead, where even though he was dead, he is no longer dead. And it's silent, it, it, we believe it kind of like symbolizes like the silence of death beginning from here on out, where Jesus gets the last word from here on out, and death does not. But what we find here in the chapter 11 and chapter 12 is a reflection, a sobering and somber reflection upon death. And so I want to invite you, as we have for the last several weeks, again, into kind of a, a temporary despair. I want to invite you into, into a temporary despair. Whatever it is that you are currently finding your identity in. Like, that's who I am. That's what I am about. If, if there's something you're currently pursuing, if there's something you're hoping will satisfy you, if there's something you're looking to for comfort, my hope is that at least for the time that we're opening the book of Ecclesiastes, that thing is gradually, by God's grace, being pried from your own fingertips. And it will hurt. He even warns us of this. It will hurt. It will feel like a painful prodding but I hope that that temporary discomfort serves as the beginning of a deeper gladness, a greater wisdom, and a longer-lasting joy. So beginning in verse 1, as he wraps up, this is at the grand finale. He says, look, this is what this is all about. This is our conclusion after thinking about life under the sun, and this is what we ought to do as a response. Remember we saw last week, the last two chapters, the tense has utterly changed, and now he's speaking words of exhortation. For the first 10 chapters, he just said, this is wise, this is foolish. Do with that what you will. Discuss amongst yourselves. But from now on, beginning in verse 11, he says, okay, now that you have considered what is wise and considered what is foolish, do these things. Respond in this way. And wisdom is not simply the gaining of information of which we are in no shortage in our current day, but wisdom is to take this and actually do something with it. So beginning in verse 1, he says, remember also your Creator and the days of your youth. Remember, you, and he uses a word that your Creator you did not come from yourself. You came from somewhere else. You were someone else's idea. You were someone else's design. You don't get to pat yourself on the back for how smart or tall or short or whatever you think you are. You were designed this way. He seems to imply here that there's a sovereign God that is doing something here. And we ought to remember that, especially, it says, in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So here, here's what you can do, right? Eat, eat all the spinach and kale, do all the CrossFit you want, do, like, do everything you can think of to prolong your life. But at that moment where you have prolonged your life beyond the average lifespan, you will find yourself looking at your life and its length and saying, I really don't want to be alive anymore. I've lost the pleasure of life. We talked about this last week, um, and, and I'll just use this as a selfish way to thank you. Um, thank you so many of you for your prayers and your encouragement. Um, this last week, I preached at my grandmother's funeral, uh, a godly woman who loved the Word, and, uh, and just, just a, a woman that I think would would love that we're reading a book like Ecclesiastes. 
um, I was reading through one of her study Bibles, and uh, she had notes from, um, from Ezekiel 16, 6. Ezekiel 16 being the most, one of the most complicated chapters of the Bible, the longest, um, one of the longest little prophecies in the book of Ezekiel, and confusing as I can imagine. And she was scribbling about trying to understand like one of the most difficult places of the Bible. So it, it, it's encouraging that we look at this because these words actually describe her. A woman who was marked by joy, but in the last decade after losing her husband and then her own health beginning to fail over the last eight years. This is, this is it. Isn't it ironic? She was blessed with 92 years, but along with that blessing of long life comes the days where you say, I'm ready for this to be over. And it's strange because there's like a, you know, if, if, one, you know, if I died tomorrow, they'd say, what a tragedy, he died too young. Right? And, and there may be a, a, a full room of people to mourn the loss of a, of a young person. But if God blesses you with long life, there's an interesting thing that we still don't outrun death. And you'll probably, when you live that long, you outrun, you, you outlast all of your friends who t- to attend your funeral. And the funeral, even though God's granted you life, long life, there's a strange irony. The crowd gets real small because you've outlived all these people. And when we think on this, when we remember our Creator, and when we consider what youth is, and when we consider that the days are drawing nearer, think of this, the days are drawing nearer to your own death. Every day that passes, the smaller your funeral crowd becomes. Every day that passes, you're closer to the days where you lose the pleasure of life. And then what goes on here, if, you'll, if you catch this, one long sentence, one massively long sentence, this whole entire first section, is one thought. So he says, remember your Creator. Think on this. This is so good for us. Basically he's saying like, think of your Creator in your best days, your most energetic days, your most productive days. This is so good for us. We tend to put off our best. We tend to give our best away in our youth and then think that one day, maybe then, we'll begin to serve the Lord faithfully. Maybe one day that's when we'll do it. Maybe one day that's when we'll become fruitful and faithful. That's when we'll stop sinning. That's when we'll be be more joyful and we'll find happiness. We'll, we'll save up for an entire lifetime. And then when we retire, those are the good old days. Those are the golden years. That's when it counts. And, and what he says here is, is, is to push back on that and to say, friend, don't waste your life. Remember your Creator now. Before the days come when you actually believe, oh man, Jonathan was right. I am actually getting closer to death. And you'll think, oh, this is what this feels like. Before that day comes, start thinking and living in reverence of your Creator now. He's put you here for a purpose. We begin to consider the possibility that your life is not an accident. That He has has created you, designed you, and laid out your life for His glory, your joy, and your good. And to consider that now, before later, is to gain wisdom. And to think, I know, I know what you're saying, but I'll get to that tomorrow. Friend, that is foolishness. 
And he gives a list of what those days will start to look like. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. He begins to paint all these powerful metaphors of the deterioration of the human body. Now this will, re- we'll find a way to relate to this at different degrees but I hope you'll at least, if, if, if this seems like a mystery to you, I want you to like bookmark this one in your Bible and come back to this. Because the truths of these next few verses will begin to apply. So he starts, he's like, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. He's talking about eyesight. A time is coming when your eyesight will begin to fail. This is kind of a cloudiness of vision, almost like, uh, like a glaucoma, or it's almost like a, a, a cataract, if you will. There's like an old age that begins to set in and your vision begins to fail. This idea that, that uh, the clouds return after the rain, it seems to like say like your eyes are like clearing up and then they're cloudy again. Contrast to like a weather, chain, and a weather event, like a downpour, the clouds dissipate and it's sunny again. And in verse 3, he says that there's the keepers of the house. Now, this is a a metaphor for the hands or the ability to do things. When the day that the keepers of the house, did you catch this? Begin to tremble. When for reasons you can't explain, you begin to shake because your body is wearing out. Your nerves and muscles are beginning to deteriorate. When you begin to tremble in old age, it says in the This idea is that the strong man, and then the strong men are bent. This picture that the large, strongest muscles and structures of your body begin to start to deteriorate. You begin to hunch over. You you don't have the strength in these strong muscle groups like your legs and your back that you once had. Now, he's he's not trying to be super specific about these things, but, but he kind of is. And he says, and then the grinders cease because they are few. Get that one? Your teeth begin to have weakness and your ability to like mash up hard food fails you because you start running out of teeth. It says, and you look through the windows and there's a dimness. It says the doors of the street are shut. This is most likely a reference to the ears. The ears begin to shut. And he gives us an explanation. When the sound of the grinding is low, and the one rises, excuse me, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. Did you catch what he's saying there? As you get older, the, the ability to bite and eat goes away, but then it says something pretty profound. You start waking up at the sound of a bird, and your ability to sleep gets weaker and weaker. Some of you know what this is like, right? The younger, when I was a younger man, I could sleep anywhere, anytime, any occasion, right? Let's just go, you know, let's skip, let's skip, skip sleeping tonight. Tomorrow I can make up for it on the floor somewhere, right? And then something happened. Um, when I met my wife, we began dating. Um, one of the first things she bought me, I think it was like the first or second Christmas we were together, as is kind of their family custom, she bought me a satin pillowcase, don't laugh. It's amazing, okay? Now, before I knew her, we used to backpack in the Rockies up to the, the Continental Divide, high, high altitude, backpack in, carry everything in there, fish and live like cavemen and then hike out. And, and I have not been backpacking since I met my wife. And there's a, there's a strange little you know, coincidence. My backpacking days going away 
and the days of a satin pillowcase coming in. <laughs> and now, when I, once, I could sleep on the floor in any temperature, oh man, I'm, I'm pathetic. I'm, I, I can't sleep without my pillow or my bed or my pillowcase. Oh my goodness, it's awful. And he seems to imply this. The older you get, the sleep becomes more difficult. And you start getting up for some, we don't know, for some needless reason earlier and earlier and earlier. Right? One, and we talk about this, uh, we just want to celebrate this. I, I, we talk about this having a, a long view of church membership in our church. Uh, we want to be thinking in terms of like one day, okay, what, I don't know what this is, but one day guys, being a part of our church, men, we're going to be the guys that are at, at whatever, at McDonald's at 5 o'clock in the morning drinking coffee because we can't sleep anymore. Okay, so we want to leverage this for God's glory and we want to have a long view of following Jesus together. We've been given a season, let's leverage it, let's be those guys. But let's remember, those guys are there because they can't sleep in. And then it turns into a badge of honor, have you heard this? When like old farmers or old guys get around, what time did you get up? Oh, I got up at 4 o'clock. Oh, what a lazy man you are. I've been up since two. And it's like, all right. That's, that's clearly not a young man's game, isn't it? And he's saying, the days are coming where this will be you. You used to be able to sleep through the alarm clock. You used to literally be able to sleep through the sound of a bird like a rooster crowing in the morning who wakes up before it's even light out. But a day's coming where that's not happening says they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. So there's this sense in which something is coming. The fear of heights. The things that you used to think were normal. You begin to be a little bit more cautious and you're like, ah, man, I don't know if I want to do that anymore. I don't know if my body can handle that just yet. I, don't think, those, I think those days have kind of come and gone. Your ability to heal begins to be diminished and then he makes a, a pretty specific reference it says like the tree blossoms yet the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails he's saying that one day the tree will blossom but your virility your sexual desire will diminish and the things you once used to consider to be normal will start to change we find that even though it says here like the blossom comes, it seems to be a contrast. Even though nature seems to renew itself year after year, the human body simply grows older and weaker. He says there's a thing that's going to happen. Your desire will fail because eventually you're going to your eternal home. That is, your creator will take his creation back and the mourners will fill the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered in the fountain, and the wheel is broken at the cistern, and then the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. When that happens, when all of this happens, you will look at your life and realize how fleeting it is and say, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all of vanities. You will look at your life, and you will think upon it, and find yourself feeling like it's useless as has been the custom as we walk through this book we find this everything done under the sun is fleeting and therefore in the last analysis meaningless 
Your life is but a breath. And finding significance in this life is like chasing, trying to collect, we found, a breath. That word, remember, the word hevel showed up 37 times. This idea of poof, an onomatopoeia that eventually our life will come to an end like the breath. Just like a few months ago when you could for a moment see a breath in the winter and then it goes away. And just for a moment you begin to understand a breath for the first time because you see it. Life will dissipate. It will disappear. And since it's fleeting, since death is the end, you will look at it and say, it's been futile. You don't get to take anything with you. It's futile. No matter what you do, you will not stop death from coming. No matter what you do, this list of things that begins to apply to you more and more each day. And I, look, I love the, the, like the, the age differences we have in our own church. I look around and see some ages of people who are like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, I'm right with you. And the rest of them are like, what? I don't, what, is this, what is this old age thing you're talking about, right? And, and more and more, remember, again, remember this passage because as these things creep up on you and you can do nothing to outrun them, eventually the limitedness of your own life will leave you realizing how futile it is. You can't prolong it. And to find satisfaction in it will be troubling. We find here that it is futile. Because death ends it, it's all futile. All is vanity. All is meaningless. All is futility. It is all futile. And then he goes into a conclusion here. After he summed up like 12 chapters of reflecting on his frailty, his own humanity, the meaninglessness of finding joy apart from God, the meaninglessness of trying to find joy under the sun rather than looking beyond the sun. He summarizes the whole thing. Being besides, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. Presumably, we're talking about the entirety of the book of Proverbs, which at the very least was done uh, with a great deal of contribution from Solomon or at least with his oversight. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And they are given by the one shepherd. So we've got to pick this apart, man. He's, he's wrapping up. This is the grand finale. As we've contemplated the, the mystery of the meaninglessness of life, the, the seemingly our inability to find satisfaction and lasting contentment in the things that we do and the things that we accomplish. No matter how far we chase over the rainbow, even if we get there, we find that it doesn't satisfy. We find a new rainbow to chase the end of. After we've thought on these things and contemplated these things, he says, this is what you will find. The wisdom I'm giving you, they're like goads. So do you remember what I told you about this like uh, temporary discomfort that will come that will lead you to a greater gladness and a deeper joy? A goad would have been a very sharp or blunt object that a shepherd or, or anyone who worked with animals would have used. And there would have been two different ways they would have used it. They would have used it, again, not quite sharp enough to stab you and hurt you, but sharp enough to make you think twice about what you were doing. So a shepherd would have used it to kind of corral and guide the sheep, or 
Secondarily, they would have used goads if, they were, if there was oxen or something pulling, whether pulling a plow or pulling a cart or pulling a wagon of some sort. The goad was the things that was used to prod the backside of the animal pulling the cart or doing the work. And the goad, it wasn't meant to kill you, but it would hurt you. It would guide you in the direction you ought to go. And I want to like point this out. This is one of these moments where it's like, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. Because this, this is a big deal. If you spend your whole life avoiding discomfort, if you spend your whole life idolizing comfort to the point where your goal in life is to feel no pain, friend, you'll fail, but secondarily, you are a fool. We find here that a goad, this picture of godly wisdom, is the small and temporary discomfort and pain that leads to greater joy. And in fact, this is evidence of God's mercy. We find all throughout the Bible that the Lord actually disciplines and rebukes those whom He loves. We believe that's the seedling of the Gospel. Right? Like, if my daughter runs toward traffic and I yell at her, and I scold her, and I say, look, death is over there. And even if I have to grab her by whatever I can get a hold of to stop her, in that moment she will think I am such an uncaring and unloving and insensitive father. But you know what's really going on. I'm keeping her from death. I'm willing to make her uncomfortable in that moment. I'm willing to hinder her from what she wants to do. I'm willing to stop her from following her heart or searching out for her own heart's desires because I know that it will kill her. And I don't do that because I'm a hateful and deadbeat father. I do that because I'm a loving and caring father. In fact, if she's running into traffic, into certain doom and death, and I just said, well, kids got to learn the hard way, you would think, what an evil and hateful father, wouldn't you? We find the same thing. My concern is that in a society and in a culture right now that is built on entertaining ourselves to death, like intoxicating ourselves with creature comforts, I don't know that we have the capacity for this kind of wisdom. The way I would test this, how many people in your life tell you things you don't really want to hear? How many people in your life do you allow to point out blatantly obvious sin? How many people are around you that you actually welcome the thought that they would come and say, this is sin. Death is in this direction. This ends in destruction. How many people? Because the way you answer that question will help you answer the question of whether or not you're a wise person or an idiot. If you are a fool, you will do everything that you can to kick those people out of your life. And even now, you're sitting there thinking, I guess here's what I would say. Is like, if, if you've never in the time that we've opened up the Bible together thought, I don't like that, well, then I've been spouting foolishness. But a godly wisdom says, look, this is wrong. This leads to death. Please, please don't do this. This will kill you and the people you love. And it's wisdom to consider it. It may hurt, right? It may be like a goad. 
My favorite, we saw this in, uh, in Acts 27 when Paul recounts, the Apostle Paul recounts as he was Saul and he encountered Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, you are kicking against the goads. You are kicking against the thing that God means to use to grant you joy and bring your life to wisdom. It says that like a fixed like firmly fixed nails are the collection of wise sayings. So there's this picture here of like a person's life that isn't firmly fastened together. That a fool's life will be marked by disarray, disconnectedness, a disjointed nature of things. Everything will be separated and disintegrated. And foolishness will be visible because it will be like a rickety thing that is not held fast together by godly wisdom. So I'll ask you, how are you doing with that? Are you running your life or is it running you? If your life was, was a thing like a plate and you had all the things on your plate, are you managing it well? Do you know the size and capacity of your plate? Or do you regularly get more on your plate than you can handle? Friend, this is foolishness. Wisdom is to recognize that there are limits to things. There's an integrity to things. That is a, a, a sameness, a oneness to things. And that is what wisdom looks like. Are you predictable or do you just look like whoever you're hanging out with? Because the words of the wise are like goads. They hurt, they sting, but they're like a welcome gift that we know that we are being disciplined by a loving Father. And then he says something strange. He says they're given by one shepherd. One shepherd. Now this idea of one shepherd, this shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament, presumably um, in a couple of the prophetic literature, but, but, but oh, these books, but, but specifically in Ezekiel. And whenever we think of the one shepherd, we're thinking of a Messiah. We're thinking of a Savior. We're thinking that there is a one shepherd who will guide these things. The goads, the, the things that are used to prod people in a certain direction are, are in his hand. And so you'll see this reflection of we are all like sheep and we have all gone astray implying that evidently there is a shepherd that's going to hold us together. My son, verse 12 says, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And of much study is a weariness of the flesh. So here's what we find. Strangely enough that we currently live in a culture, I think, that tells you that your solution is information. What you need is to be better connected and more informed. That's what you need, right? You need more notifications on your phone. You need more things to tell you what's going on in the world. And information is key. But wisdom, we come to find out, is not necessarily information. It's what you do with it. In fact, I would argue that most of the foolish things we do in life are not because we didn't know. Sometimes that happens. But some of the worst things we do in life, the most foolish, rebellious, and sinful things we do in life, we knew exactly what we were doing. We saw it like, this is right, this is wrong, nah, I'll go anyway. And we come to find out that this is our problem. We don't just need information, we need wisdom. 
We need godly counsel and godly guidance. We need God to lead us in the right direction. I think what we find here is this. The insignificance of all that is done under the sun leaves us awestruck and silent before God. Instead of, again, let's write more books. Let's pass on more information. Instead, it says here we are awestruck by God because he summarizes the entirety of the book, the entirety of the meaning of existence in verse 13. Now stop right there before we read it. This is important, okay? I, I'm going to maybe give a social critique here, and it's a, it's a half-baked idea, so uh, this is a dialogue I want to begin. Um, but for all of the information and learning and education that we have access to at present, there is very little help about what you should do with it. And there's almost no instruction about why it even exists. So you can make your way through, this is what I would argue, you can make your way through homeschool, public school, or private school, and no, no one at any point tell you why you're even learning, why you exist, and why you're alive. Have you seen this? You could get 10 degrees and not know why you're alive. And he is boiling it down here. This is the meaning of life. This is it. This, if you want to summarize all of these things, all of your learning can't get you there. All of the data and information can't get you there. It won't help you answer the why. Why are you even here? The end of the matter, he says in verse 13, and all has been heard. Here it is. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The word man there, he uses the word Adam as if to imply all of humanity entrusted with the image of God. That word duty is, is actually imposed upon the text. It literally just says this is the whole of man. The whole of humanity. Fear God, keep His commandments. Because God is the one who will bring every deed into judgment. So here's where we'll, we'll begin to kind of turn the corner and wrap this up. Proverbs 29 says it this way, the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. To fear the Lord is to consider God above everything and everyone else. To fear the Lord and to desire to do what's right in God's eyes is the ultimate meaning and purpose of life. And it even means that our possible outcomes of our decision, because we fear the Lord, might cost us certain comforts in the short term. And if we fear the Lord, then we're guided by the following kinds of questions that I think we ought to ask. Now, you can find on our website, and our podcast, we did a threefold series on what is a biblical way to discern and to understand the will of God for your life. And we talk about it in this threefold fashion. God's will is His Word. It's explicit. Honor your father and mother. What, do you, what is God? I don't know what God wants me to do today. Honor your father and mother every day, all the time. Well, what if I want to do this? Does that honor your father and mother? Cool, then you can keep, go, keep going. Proceed. Not, then don't do it, right? There's explicit things here. All the way to like 1 Thessalonians 5, we see this. Remember, uh, rejoice in the Lord always, pray without ceasing, and uh, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Jesus Christ. This is God's will. We see it in his word. Secondarily, we see his will through counsel. People who, who hold God's word, who, who want to live and, let, and be shaped by God's word, are people you should allow to shape you and shape your decisions. And then lastly, we begin to consider the circumstances. 
If, if we're not disobeying God's word, if we're not disobeying God's counsel that's given to us and we think is God's word, then, then there's a sense in which the spirit lives in us. If we are in Christ, leads us, we make those decisions. You make a mistake, God will come alongside you like a loving father, put his arm around you and say, that was dumb, let's don't do that again and walk you out of it. This is life, okay? This is the way we understand the will of God. And we ask questions like, so then, what does the Bible say? We ask questions like, what do godly and wise people say to me? How can I best glorify God? How can I weigh these circumstances and then make decisions based on the greater glory that God receives? That's godly wisdom. That's what we see here. Fearing God. But what I find is, if you do not fear the Lord, then you probably fear someone or something else instead. This word fear, the idea of awe, this, the idea of like being in awe of something, going, oh, I'm, look at that thing. That, that thing is great. I, I want to make my moves based on that thing. That's the fear we have here. And when the fear of the Lord isn't present, then you know what happens next. The fear of people takes over. And instead of asking questions like, what does the Bible say? You say things like, well, what is everyone else going to think? Instead of, instead of asking questions like, can I have godly wisdom poured into my life? Can I have biblical truth spoken over my life? You run away from people. And you do your very best to hide from God, his word, and his people. You're a free agent. Because after all, you know best. No need to fear God. You are God. No need to listen to people who open the Bible and speak wisdom to you because you know better than them. And then lastly, you begin to ask questions instead of like, how can I glorify God and serve others? You begin to ask questions like, how can I get the glory from other people? Because here's what we find. If you don't fear God and seek to do His will, this is what you find. If you fear God, you will love people, genuinely. But if you fear people, you will ignore God and use people. Don't miss this. If you don't fear God, if you don't really think that he's the judge over all things, then you'll reject any counsel and you'll use people around you. And this is where this applies for some of you. Some of you right now, your greatest fear is not the Lord who is sovereign over the universe who's created you. Your greatest fear is of being uncomfortable. Your greatest fear is not fitting in. Your greatest fear is not being approved of. Your greatest fear is what that your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, girlfriend will say about you or say to you. Here's the way to dig right at the heart of this. Who are you okay sinning with? Who are you okay sinning with? Who are you okay sinning around? Because that person and that what they represent is God to you. And you are more worried about their acceptance and approval than you are about the almighty creator God. Really think about this. If there's some people like, oh, every time I hang around with them, I tend to sin. Friend, you worship them. You don't fear God. You fear their rejection. You're terrified of it. You're terrified of being made fun of. And you will sacrifice the approval of God almighty for the approval of these people. Little kids call this peer pressure. Psychologists call this codependency. 
And as adults, we call this something like being a people pleaser. But see it for what it is. If you're willing to disobey God's best will for you with those people, they probably represent something that you worship more than anything else. Is it acceptance? Is it achievement? You don't want to disappoint the people that could promote you? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of being lonely? When you sin with your whoever that person is, you, you know what God has for you, but you're like, no, I'm just going to go ahead and justify this sin. What are you so afraid of? Because until you ask that question, I want to warn you, you're living in a dangerous foolishness. Friend, wisdom is to consider God's vision over these things who will bring every deed into judgment according to verse 14 and then live accordingly. Because in the end, you're just using those people. You don't really love them. You're using them because they make you feel good. We find this as we reflect on the entirety of this book, the sovereign freedom of God, the limits of human wisdom, thoughts on the use and abuse of wealth and power, and the brevity and absolute contingency of human life, they all lead to the command to fear God. Everything we've reflected upon for the last several weeks, what life really is, how short it really is, what wisdom and foolishness really look like, what pleasure and contentment really look like, the limits of pleasure and satisfaction that we can gain under the sun. When we, con when we contemplate all of those things, we're left with this conclusion. Fear God. If you don't fear God, you'll fear something else. And in the end, He is a judge. And He will bring everything into judgment. So here's what I would warn you. For some of you, the only verse you have memorized and you paraphrase it is, don't judge others which you conveniently pull out whenever someone points out sin in your life or the sin in someone else's life. And you go, stop judging people. Okay, sort of. Uh, but Jesus used those words in the context of hypocrisy, the context of confessing sin and letting it out. And what I would argue is, maybe the thing you fear is that, is God's judgment. You hate the thought of people judging other people and the wisdom and folly in their life because you know where that will leave you. Friend, dispense with that fear and replace it with a healthy awe and fear of God. Well, you're like, well, Jonathan, you're fear-mongering. Yes! Every week, fear the Lord. Have great and healthy awe and terror before the Lord. You and I are walking toward a judgment day. And you will either cry for mercy and He will come near to you because He draws near to the humble. Or you will proudly and boldly prance right up to your judgment. And God who opposes the proud will crush you. And I love you. I love you. I love you enough to warn you about what's coming. I love you so much that I don't want you to miss this. I will sacrifice your approval of me to point out that there is wisdom now that although it may hurt, friend, it's like a surgeon's knife. It hurts, but it is precise and it is to bring about life. The end of the matter, we fear God. And instead of using people, we honor and love people. 
All of these things, all of them are futile without Jesus. But because of Jesus, you can live a meaningful life here and now and forevermore. So this concept of hevel, futility, vanity, as it were, that we've been walking through for the last 12 weeks. I don't remember. Don't do math out loud. The way we opened our worship service this morning was with verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul begins to encourage people about vanity. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, about the good news, the gospel I preached to you. You received it. You stand in it. You're being saved. Unless, of course, you have believed in vain. Get that concept of vanity again. He says, I've passed on this thing to you. And beginning in verse 12, he says, Now, Christ has been shared with you, proclaimed to you as having been raised from the dead. And yet some are saying that there's no real resurrection of the dead. Mind you, we we believe the Christian faith anyway is, is a faith built on an impossibility. Our single important premise that we celebrate today, that Jesus is alive, is is built and predicated upon a possibility. It's built on a miracle. And so it's hard to believe. And if you maybe have skepticism or doubt, I'm so glad you're here. I want you to consider the possibility that Jesus is who he says he is. He has done what he said he was going to do, and he has finished the task. Because he says if there's no resurrection of the dead, then that means Christ hasn't even been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is, get this word, in vain. It's futility. And your faith is in vain. It's futile. And we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, and not Christ has even been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith the thing you're currently putting your trust in is futile. It's vanity. It's meaningless. And you are still in your sin. He concludes that in Christ we have hope. But if in Christ we only have hope in this life, you hear that phrase, in this life? Under the sun, this life apart, from God's eternal purpose, if we only have hope in this life, if it's all up to this life, then it's vanity, according to Ecclesiastes, and it says we are of all people most to be pitied. Friend, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. But I want to encourage you, if you want to escape a meaningless life, if you want to escape futility, if you want to get off the treadmill that is this life, constantly looking for things to satisfy and finding discontentment at the end of it, if you want to find meaning, hope, satisfaction, a true and lasting approval and identity, a lasting gladness and joy, then we find it here. It is in Christ. He has been raised. He has done the impossible. He has brought that which is beyond the sun down below the sun for you and I to see. And the eternity of life beyond the sun, he has brought in and inaugurated today, the day we celebrated it, he walked out victorious over sin, death, and hell. The resurrection is what gives meaning. 
The resurrection is what gives this meaningless life any hope, any purpose. It's what gives everything we say and do a purpose. It is the root of our hope. It is our Christian peace. Some people will say, well, like all religions are the same, but they're only superficially different. Easter Sunday shatters that. Easter Sunday demands something of you and me. There was one philosopher who put it this way. If Christ has been raised, then nothing else matters. If Christ has not been raised, then nothing else matters. You are still in your sin. But we really believe that if you really contemplate this, is it possible that meaningful life under the sun comes from beyond the sun in Jesus Christ? And you have to weigh this. Either a man conquered death or death is the end. Either a man has granted victory over death or your grinders are going to weaken and fall out, your hands are going to start shaking, you're going to be put in the ground and that will be the end. Or, or it's possible that there was a man who came and he has experienced pain and death and he has brought victory through it. If I could summarize American Christianity for you, it would probably be these four words. Easter without the cross. Resurrection without death. Like Easter without judgment. Easter without fear. Easter without any sort of discontentment. Easter without the wrath of God. Easter without the pain. But friend, we know we find futility in this life. And as it comes to an end, and as our weakness becomes more and more prevalent and visible for us, we look to the one who was killed, murdered as a weak man, and resurrected victorious as a strong man. And we think on death to turn to God. Because even though the clock is ticking, we know that Jesus is the one who holds the clock. And even as our life is deteriorating before we return to dust, and even though we die under the curse of sin, we know that there is one who came who is greater than Solomon who became sin. And we celebrate this together. So here's our response. A couple chapters earlier, he says that here's how we reflect. We reflect on death, we reflect on our weakness, and here's how Christians respond. We get together and we celebrate a mystery. We take a piece of bread, and for us, in a moment, we'll take a piece of bread and we'll dip it into some juice, and someone will declare a mystery. It says in verse 23, I have received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Now do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, after supper, he said, this cup is now a new covenant. And you, you couldn't obey the old one, but this new covenant is now in my blood. So do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're not afraid of death. We embrace it and we see Jesus' victory over it. So in a moment, we're going to close and we're going to respond by celebrating in song and declaring the good news and song together, but we're also going to be invited to participate in a mystery. A mystery that we celebrate and someone will break off a piece of bread and hand it to you and they'll declare good news over your life. Good news that will give you meaning. This is the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And you'll dip that bread into juice and we'll participate in a mystery that this is the blood of Christ 
But he says this, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of the blood of the Lord. Now to let a person examine himself then before they eat the bread and drink the cup. And so we're going to do just that. We're going to respond obediently and we're going to ask, we're going to say, God, here's what you speak. Where's the foolishness? Where's the sin? We're going to let it be exposed. We're not afraid of those goads. We're not afraid of the temporary pain because on Easter Sunday, above all else, we celebrate Jesus has got this. Jesus has paid for this and he rose over death victorious to know that, so that you would know he is the judge over this. And he gives mercy. So I want to invite you. I'm going to begin to pray. If you would just bow your heads with me, if you close your eyes, however is your custom, we want to begin to pray. I want to ask you a couple questions, and I want you, in your own words, uh, in your own, there, I don't want to put words into your mouth just yet. I, I want you to begin to contemplate. Just ask the Lord here, in your own way, God, is there any foolishness in me? Is there a way that I'm not weighing my life rightly? In your own words, just ask, is, is there a way that maybe you're being foolish or idiotic about your own life and what God has put you here for? And in your own words, would you just begin to confess if there's, if there's something in you that's unworthy a pride, an unconfessed sin, and something that's keeping you from receiving the victory of Jesus in this ordinance. Would you just begin to confess that in your own way? Would you just let the Lord have that? And then lastly, one of two things. If, if the courageous thing for you today, the wise thing for you today is to not drink to your own judgment and to not celebrate foolishly and immaturely your own judgment, would you just pray that God would give you the courage to declare the gospel in song? But if you're not a Christian or maybe this just doesn't mean anything to you or there's a barrier here, would you just be courageous enough to not take communion today? All you'll be doing is celebrating the judgment that's coming for you. But would you also consider the possibility that we declare a mystery that while we were in our sin, Jesus Christ died in our place. While we were in our trespasses, while we were the enemy, Jesus took our place. In a moment, we're going to celebrate that. We're going to, someone's going to declare a mystery to us that we're invited to believe. That in the end, death doesn't get the last word body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us does. In the end, death doesn't get the victory, but its sting is lost. And Jesus, who reigns victorious, freely gives his body and blood for those who would come to seek life. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>